at least at the very least weight neutrality where we're just neutral about weight. We don't have to be positive about our bodies to stretch, but just to be appreciative and grateful for the body that we have instead of judging it so harshly, it will free up so much of our energy, so much of our thoughts we can dedicate to other things. If we're in a conversation, we can be truly immersed in the conversation rather than thinking about, you know, this waistband on my jeans is digging into me because I ate too much last night. You know, imagine what that would feel like. I, I would love that for all women. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. Today, we have Melanie Rogers joining the podcast, and Melanie brings years of expertise as a professional in eating disorder cases and also some personal experience as well. And this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It was only recently that I really started talking about my history of issues surrounding food and body image. And when I say history, if you go back to episode two, I mean two decades of having daily battles. So we're really, really looking forward to this episode today. But before we dive into all the questions, Melanie, could you introduce yourself and also let us know what you do and why you're so passionate about it? Absolutely. First and foremost, an absolute pleasure to be here with you both today. So thank you for having me. Um, A little bit about me. Um, As you probably can pick up, I I have an accent. I'm originally from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia, and I came out here to New York City, which is where I'm based, um, about 20 years ago. And I came out to do a master's degree in clinical nutrition here at New York University with a desire to go on and become a registered dietitian. And my My thinking there, guys, was um, actually it's a personal story, but my grandmother passed away from a heart attack when I was quite young, and it left a really important impression in my mind about preventative care, and because I'd always heard that she'd struggled with her weight, and if she just ate differently, et cetera, et cetera, that maybe that wouldn't have happened to her. Um, And so as a younger person in my teens, I was thinking, well, I'm going to become a doctor, and I'll be able to you know, prevent people from having heart attacks. Um, But then I realised doctors don't practice preventative care or preventative medicine. So then I was introduced to this idea of nutrition. I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to, you know, be on the preventative side. Well, long story short, I think many of us now know that being on the preventative side is kind of hard with insurance. Yeah. Right. That was was my goal and and whatnot. Um, So that was how I got into nutrition. Um, and then once I was doing my master's, actually the reason I chose New York City is a little bit of a geek here, but um, going into the world of nutrition and knowing my grandmother's struggle with being uh, with weight, um, I really wanted to understand this, this, this uh, challenge that people had with weight and food, and I was drawn to the research around it. And here in New York City is one of five obesity research centres in the, in the U.S., so I thought, I want to be close to the research. I want to go and find out what the heck is going on. And this would be a really wonderful and important career path. So that's why I came to New York. Long story short, I ended up interning at the Obesity Research Center here in New York as part of my registered dietitian training, and then ultimately worked there for a couple of years as a new graduate. And while I was there... It was certainly, you know, we were looking at ghrelin and leptin and appetite hormones that had just started to be discovered, um, where we were realizing that it's not just calories in, calories out, but there's all of these biological systems that affect how we eat, what we eat, but also our weight. And that um, no matter what, you know, the diet industry tells us, and even now the health and wellness industries, uh, industry, um, whether we like it or not, you know, our body weight is not actually within our control to the degree that we've been led to believe. So that might blow some people's mind because it's the antithesis of what we've been told. 
Um, but nonetheless, that's where I started to learn that. And perhaps even more importantly or more connected to my career now is that I was introduced to a study that was going on where they were treating clients with something called binge eating disorder. Um, people may know it as compulsive overeating or emotional eating. And what was so profound, guys, is that they weren't just looking at what the clients what the clients were eating, but they were looking at their relationship to food and they were looking at the emotional connection to food and stress in their life. So they had a registered dietitian on the team, but they also had a psychologist, which was like, wow, this is amazing. They also had an MD, they had a psychiatrist and they had a sports physiologist. And that just blew me away that they were approaching this relationship with food and this behavior with food from what we call a multidisciplinary or multidimensional aspect. And that made sense to me. That resonated on some deep level that, yeah, this, this must be complicated because so many people are struggling. Like it can't just be calories in, calories out. And so that's what got me on the path with, um, okay, this is called an eating disorder. And in this one, this type of eating disorder is called binge eating, but there are others. And we, I'd heard of anorexia and bulimia, but I didn't really, um, I didn't know that much about it other than what we've read in the, you know, popular uh, mainstream media. But I, I then started to delve more into what we call the spectrum of eating disorders, everything from anorexia, which is under eating, and right through to binge eating disorder, which is, which is overeating. But they all have a lot of similarities, as it turned out. And so it just rocked my world. It really intrigued me. Um, I think as a woman where we've all struggled with body image and such, it really caught my attention. And so I just did a deep dive, and, and that's what became my, my passion um, I hope this answer is not too long in then saying. <laughs> no. In, is it okay in you've, saying that? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You've already <laughs> provided us with such important information and your expertise is why we want you here. So we are ready to learn all of the things um, from your deep dives. Um, but when I was reading your own personal experience and the fact that you yourself have recovered from an eating disorder, um, I have to imagine that helps you understand what other women are going through at a deeper level. And the question I had with that is, it, when a person is recovering from an eating disorder, is that a lifelong struggle or is that something that now you've been through it and um, you've moved on from it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we do know that full recovery is absolutely possible, absolutely full recovery. I, I regard myself as someone who is fully recovered. Um, and what does that look like? That looks like um, food is neutral. Um, the, the, the research tells us that um, you need to have a relationship with food. You know, obviously there are different angles to this, but basically... Food has to be food. So pizza is just the same to me as, as a salad, as sushi, as a hamburger, in the sense of there's no moral judgment around it. I'm a registered dietitian, so I know that, you know, a, a really great salad with a lot of great coloured vegetables in it is going to give me a great nutritional hit. It's going to give me more of a nutritional hit than... Um, hot dogs, which is what I craved all through my pregnancy. <laughs> and I almost subsisted on hot dogs, so that'll tell you something. Um, but the point of it being like I know there's more of a nutritional hit and I think the average American knows that, but nonetheless there's not a moral judgment because, you know, pizza is fuel, so is a salad. So um, neutrality with food is, is getting rid of the judgment around it, um, profoundly being connected to your body and your sense of hunger and fullness and satiety, which, you know, right now we've heard this um, term intuitive eating, which is really just listening to your internal regulatory system around hunger, fullness, satiety and preference. That's a key thing there. And also that, you know, you need to have your, your, your fun foods, your chocolate, or for me, it's Doritos and a glass of wine. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's my bliss, you know, and yeah, is it processed? Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. Yep, great. But it's my pleasure food, you know. Um, so full recovery is absolutely possible, um, but it takes a lot of work. 
and you can't do it alone or very few people do it alone. Um, and unfortunately, only about 10% of people who have uh, a diagnosable eating disorder actually ever get treatment for it. And so therefore, I would suggest, guys, that there's more people out there who are living their life trying to get by making it as good as they can but still struggling with an eating disorder. So I think that's why there's probably a lot of debate about it as well. Um, but we know what it looks like. And excuse me, I didn't mean to be so blanket there. There's going to be a subset of people who, who maybe it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's going to take a lot longer and, and, and also treatment is expensive. So, you know, I'm talking about full treatment with a multidisciplinary team to get full recovery, which means working with a nutritionist on that food piece, working with a therapist on anxiety, depression, trauma, substance use, which usually, they all kind of um, gather with an eating disorder. An eating disorder is rarely just an eating disorder. There's usually all this other stuff, family piece. And then, of course, there's the cultural and environmental influences, which is pretty profound right now, the pressure. Um, and then personality traits such as perfectionism, black and white thinking. Um, so it really takes a lot of work to look at all of those different avenues or, or areas of oneself and try to work through each of those one, each of those areas to get a full recovery. Um, for many of us who are fully recovered, um, 80% of us have anxiety and depression. That's also an inherited illness, as is an eating disorder. It's an inherited illness. People have a genetic predisposition to it. It's not their fault that they develop an eating disorder. Um, so for those of us who then have anxiety and depression, that doesn't go away when the eating disorder is, is treated, that stays. So ongoing treatment for anxiety and depression for the rest of your life is actually necessary. Um, and I do that and take it very seriously because I know if I don't, if I get overwhelmed with anxiety, it could trick me to go back into eating disorder behaviours. If I were to go on a diet, for example, I know that that could potentially turn back on the illness because that's our current theory. It's called the loaded gun theory, unfortunately, but what it, it says in essence is our genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. And we know that for many people who develop an eating disorder, um, almost 100% of us have in common that we all lost weight either through a diet or inadvertently we lost weight because we changed jobs and we just got really busy and stressed and we lost weight and then next thing you know, things got obsessive. So that's a long answer to your question about is full recovery possible? Um, as I mentioned, it absolutely is. It takes help and support. It's multifaceted, um, but it absolutely, absolutely exists. Well, Malini, it's just so telling of the struggles that as women, as a society, we go through with 90% of us not getting the help that we need. Yeah. And as you were going through each of the precursors to an eating disorder, I'm over here just raising my hand being like, wow, yeah. these are all just part of my personality from when I was a little girl and just being yeah. having that predisposition to an eating disorder um, isn't something that I've heard much about. So thank you for sharing that part of it. Yeah. And as you were going through that part of the conversation, I really want you to dig deeper into just the verbiage that you had. So between the words eating disorder and disordered eating. So I personally tend to use the word disordered eating just to discuss my history because having that label of having an eating disorder is really hard for me to come to grips with. But after digging into just some of your material and what you just said right there, have I been using the wrong verbiage all along? Is there an actual difference between those two? Yeah, there is a difference between them, um, though not much. And I do want to say from the onset that someone who's struggling with disordered eating is also struggling with a great deal of distress and they deserve help. So even if you don't meet diagnostic code, you're still hurting. Uh, maybe an analogy would be, let's say you sprain your ankle versus you break your ankle. So a broken ankle, let's say that is an eating disorder, but a sprained ankle is disordered eating. A sprained ankle still hurts a lot and it still needs a lot of medical care and it needs to be iced and elevated and you're still going to limp around and it's going to affect you for some time. So if you think about that, 
uh, I, I don't know if that's a good analogy. I just made yeah, it, it up. Yeah, it is. Completely, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, so, um, but what, what it comes down to, and these are just diagnostic codes that we use so we kind of have some sense of, of what the symptoms um, presenting are so we can therefore target treatment. But what it is is that, you know, let's say um, for someone who, who overeats on occasion and throws up, maybe they don't meet the frequency of one time a week every week for three months, but let's say they've been doing it once every other week for more than three months, in fact, probably three years. That wouldn't meet the diagnostic code for bulimia, but I would say that's a big problem and and not even definitely medically, but I would suggest so much more psychologically and emotionally because usually with eating disorders or disordered eating, there's a lot of secrecy behind the behaviour, and there's also a lot of shame. And there's a hierarchy with eating disorders um, whereby anorexia is at the top. That's the um, kind of desired eating disorder or disordered eating behaviours in the sense of if I'm going to get an eating disorder, let me have anorexia. Well, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, we don't get to choose which eating disorder we develop. It's how our brain is wired to respond to food or the absence of food that ultimately makes the difference. And often people move between anorexia, they start out restricting and they move to bulimia and or binge eating disorder and then back again. So it's not really as clear cut as we may imagine. What I would say then disordered eating is the same, the same stuff, but maybe less frequency. Maybe the binges are, are not, you know, I don't know, 10,000 calories in a binge, but maybe they're 3,000 calories in the binge. Uh, maybe you see your weight shifting, but it's a couple of pounds here, it's a couple of pounds there, as opposed to 10 or 20 or 50 pounds here, or 50 pounds there. Nonetheless, it's all still very relative. And the key question is, does it cause you some shame, embarrassment, and does it distress you? Is it something that you wish you didn't do? And if the answer to that is yes, it's serious. It's serious enough in inverted commas. And it's really helpful to maybe talk to someone about it. Because the biggest thing that happens with disordered eating is that we start to beat ourselves up and it becomes very toxic and it affects our self-esteem and our self-confidence and our sense of worth as a person. Because when we have a secret that is not a secret about privacy, it's a secret about shame then we know that it kind of erodes people's sense of self. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, a hugely damaging thing along with the medical complications that we're much more aware of. Okay, we're like two or three questions in, and I just want to say I'm so thankful to have you um, on the podcast to open up these conversations because I just know that this is so important and and something that a lot of women have experienced or are currently experiencing. When we asked our audience what they wanted us to ask you, one thing that kept coming up is that women that were um, in something like running or dancing or gymnastics where their body had to look or perform a certain way and maybe losing weight would help that performance. Um, a lot of people are still unpacking the scars of having that as their history. I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I feel so fortunate that the coaches in my life were very positive influences because I remember asking my cross-country coach if I should lose weight so that I could be faster because the two extremely fast girls on our team were very, very thin. And he said, Amy, your strength is your power and I do not want you to lose that power or lose any weight. But I know that not everyone was getting that type of message when they asked that question. So do you have any tips for those women that are unlearning a lifetime of body critique? Amy, thanks for sharing that. And um, I want to say, honestly, it brings tears to my eyes to hear your coach's response because it's the perfect response. It's also the responsible response um, for our young teens, our young adults, our college-age kids, messaging around losing weight so you'll be faster or better or whatever is the wrong messaging and it's very, very, very harmful. And you're right, 
that we, as a consequence of that, um, I think irresponsible messaging for young growing bodies, um, we have a lot of adults now that we see as clients who are trying to unpack that, that damage and, and what that did. Um, my, my, my message would be I, I just want people to know that unfortunately it's actually the norm. Unfortunately, the coaching industry um, is still a little bit stuck in that, in that reality. Uh, here's a case in point. I, I teach uh, an eating disorder class at my alma mater at in New York University to the master's level nutrition students there. And this semester, um, it, it was brought up a lot. I was quite struck by how many of the students in my class came from the sports that you just outlined, Amy. Um, and many of them, all of them had stories. In fact, I think only one did not have a story that wasn't about a coach telling them to lose weight or do this or do that. Um, so it seems to still very much be the majority. Um, so I guess what I want to say is I want to normalize people's, um, experiences. I, my heart goes out to anyone who, who I think was given very irresponsible information that was damaging um, and to just hold that space and um, and validate um, the confusion and the hurt and the anger and also where you may be now as a result of that messaging with distorted body image, uh, maybe flirting with disordered eating or maybe even perhaps with your own secret dis, uh, eating disorder. But I want to say to people that it's absolutely not your fault and just because we we focus in the eating disorder, we focus on body image and our weight. And it comes across to people who don't understand this illness as being very vain. And it has nothing to do with vanity. I mean, that, that's how it presents. Those are the symptoms. But if you go beneath the symptoms, it's about self-esteem. It's about, um, you know, wanting to be loved. It's about, it, there's so much to this. And also it's got, a, it's got a genetic base to it. So if you trigger this illness, then you're in it, no matter how you got there. So I just, wanna, I just want people to know that and I want people to know that if they're distressed um, with their eating and their relationship to their body and their relationship to food to, to maybe reach out and talk to someone about it because that can just lift some of that burden off you that you, you've been carrying around possibly for years. Well, yeah. And I could tell when I was asking that question, I had emotions stir up because I was just thinking of those that got different answers than I got and how that you know, was such a pivotal, I can remember the conversation so well, just to name how impactful that is. Yes, exactly. Which is, which is why anyone in a position of authority from teachers to coaches, especially because they have so much influence over, over the people that they're, they're trying to, you know, help be the best version of themselves in their sports. Um, so there's a lot that needs to be looked at and challenged and changed with respect to um, body-centric or, or weight-centric sports um, to really look at the behaviours that are going on. I mean, you know, look at typical um, wrestling, which is typically seen as a guy sport. So many guys develop bulimia with wrestling and we think of eating disorders as female, uh, you know, female illnesses, but, you know, guys are doing it. Jockeys, you know, um, ice skaters that are male, dancers, you know, male dancers. Um, it just goes on and on and on. The, the point there is to say that no one is immune uh, in those industries, acting, for example, and dance um, especially. So we have to be very careful, um, and especially for the parents out there, and I have a little girl of seven, and honestly I'm not pushing her to ballet classes. Um, she loves to dance, so I'm thinking modern dance. Um, because I, I want to protect her from the possibility of getting the idea that thinner is better. And it starts so young. Like it, in Amy's case, you were, what, 13, 14, maybe 15 years old in high school. And it does lead to a lot of women and men going on diets. So I want to talk a little bit more about this, regardless of the season of life that you're in, but I have yet to meet a woman who has not tried to lose weight at some point in her life. 
And a lot of what you talk about is how diets really don't work, especially with a history of disordered eating. And a big part of my past was in that restriction. And you talked about this at the beginning, Melanie, with the restriction and then the binge cycle where I would, quote unquote, be good for a few days. And then it might be after a track meet or after um, one of my gymnastics meets and I would go for a cookie. And because I had been restricting the entire week, I would end up eating the entire bag and feeling absolutely terrible. And it was that secrecy and that shame, all of those points that you brought up before that it wasn't until I really found that healthy balance that this behavior stopped. So can you go into some more details and really elaborate on why diet culture doesn't work and what women can do and focus on instead? Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty profound. And the difficult piece here is that, you know, public health campaigns and every doctor, practically every doctor you go and see will tell you, uh, will prescribe a diet to you. You know, the so-called war on obesity that started in the 90s um, really kind of latched onto this idea of, you know, we need to be careful with our weight, but also if you are at a higher weight, you should diet. Now, I don't believe we had the research then, but we do now. We've had, we've had conclusive evidence for at least 15 to 16 years that diets not even don't work. They're actually harmful. And I would even suggest that the continued increase in weight in our population, not just here in the States, but in most westernised countries, including Australia, the increase in weight um, of adults is because of what we call yo-yo dieting, which is going on one diet after the other after the other. Because here's what we know, 95% of diets fail. What does that mean? When you go on a diet, most people will lose weight. Hey, I could, I could help anyone lose weight. But after two to five years, 95% of people will have regained the weight. But even more importantly, will have regained extra weight. Why is that important or significant? Because what happens when you lose weight is you don't just lose fat, you lose muscle mass. And when you regain weight, and it's usually a rapid regain for many people, you tend to regain more fat mass than muscle mass. And it depends on where you gain that fat, but if you gain that fat around your abdominal area, we know that there's higher risk of disease. So your metabolic rate changes when you go on a diet in a negative way that then sets you up for further weight gain so then you go on your second diet and so let's say with your first diet you regained plus five pounds we do that again and again regain plus five regain plus five and now we're at after 10 diets we're at 50 pounds higher than you were when you went on your very first diet so um, the diet industry is very clever because the diet industry doesn't say, okay, well, our diet failed you. The diet industry says, oh, you failed. You fell off the bandwagon. You don't have enough willpower. Willpower is, I'm just censoring myself right now <laughs> to, not, to not swear. Um, willpower is, um, is, uh, is, yes, a little bit like magical thinking. Um, there are biological systems we now know that the body basically fights back to regain weight. And actually that horrible show called The Biggest Loser showed yeah. us that when people lost significant amount of weight um, and even with what they were doing five and six years later, most had regained weight plus some. Um, and they found that five to six years later, their metabolic rates had not fully recovered. In fact, some of them were at a metabolic rate of 800 calories less than they had been at the same weight six years earlier. Metabolic rate, just for viewers, uh, for listeners, excuse me, is uh, the number of calories that your body burns pretty much just sitting still each day, you know, not, not really taking into act activity. Activity is actually a small percentage of the number of calories we burn, uh, interestingly. Um, so it's pretty significant. So what I'm saying is that diets mess up our bodies metabolically they can actually cause irreversible changes in the body that set us up to future weight gain. And if we're correlating weight gain with illness, which our current public health campaign is, I say correlation, not causation, then it does put us at risk for future illness as well. 
but perhaps even more so it's the head job, you know, of I don't have enough willpower and I'm disgusting and I'm loathful, et cetera, et cetera. Not realising that, let's give an example, if you went to the doctor for a migraine and the doctor said, well, I've got this medicine, it's the only medicine we have, 95% of the time it doesn't work and, in fact, it'll make things worse, but um, here, let me write you a, subscri- a prescription. I don't know about you, but I would say, what the hell? Yeah, there's, a 5% ch- yeah, there's a 5% chance this might help and there's greater, huge chances that this is going to make things worse. No, thank you. But that's all we've got right now. Um, and weight stigma and weight bias is all part of that equation. Um, but that's why dieting is dangerous um, that's why also hopefully I've explained a little bit as to what we know about how diets fail and our medical industry still is prescribing diets. Um, most women will attest to that. If you go to the doctor and you say, doctor, I've got an earache. If you happen to be in a higher weight body, the doctor will say, I think you need to lose weight. And it's like, but I have an earache. Yes. I think you need to lose weight. I'm, I'm not actually, I'm not exaggerating because I've heard those stories, but but it just tells you how weight-centric we are, that if you lose weight, it will cure everything. But actually the research tells us, tells us otherwise. It tells us a lot about joyful movement, about trying to eat in a balanced way, not in a restrictive way, about managing stress, about you know, maybe not smoking if you can or, or reducing and certainly being a little bit mindful of your alcohol intake. And particularly during COVID-19, I think that's really relevant. But nonetheless, we see health as it's not just what you eat and it's certainly not just the number on the scale. It's just one data point and it doesn't tell nearly the amount of information that we've been told it does. Thank you for sharing all that. Uh, I know that Abby has a little girl, as do so many of our listeners. I've been blessed with three little boys, as you said. Um, <laughs> that doesn't mean they're immune to having issues down the road. But one question that came in from a listener said she's a school counselor. And um, her concern is how as teachers and childcare workers and others that work directly with children, how can we be positive role models to the children we're raising or the children we're serving? Absolutely. It's a great question. And the answer may not be what we love to hear, but you've got to walk the talk. So that means that you can't be doing your own thing with body image issues, not eating, binge eating, having your own non-neutral relationship with food and the scale but then telling your kids something else you have to walk the talk so what that means is that uh, parents and and teachers but parents in particular because our kids watch us um, if you're struggling it would be really 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 important to to maybe you know talk to someone get some peer support get some help um, so that you can actually really truly role model neutrality with food, joyful movement, not talking about weight, not talking about people's bodies, not talking about people's physical self actually can be very, very helpful. Um, Because what we want to do is de-emphasize the focus on the external and the way we look and certainly what it is and catch yourself like, you know, I've been in working in this field for a long time but uh, several years ago, many years ago, actually, um, I took a weight bias survey just to see where my weight bias was. And I admit I was a little bit arrogant because I thought, well, I've been working, working with higher weight clients now for a long time. And, you know, I love this population and, and I, I, think I'm, I think I'm in a good place. And, you know, I, I, have my own, I had my own weight biases because we, we, it's hard not to because of the culture we're in. So we can affect the microculture of our family and we can affect as, a, as uh, maybe someone working in a school, we can affect the microculture and the, the micro-community of what the kids are exposed to there. And so you actually have a real opportunity for some positive role modelling in the same way that Amy, your coach, like that was really profound what, what that coach said to you and so profound with what we might uh, hear from our teachers and counselors, but also see at home. And just like you said, especially under our own roofs. 
And because there is a hereditary factor to that. Like I, I don't think I knew that before this conversation today. So thank you for bringing that up earlier. And since I do have a four-year-old, Lucy, she is such a sponge with everything from how I put my makeup on to the type of dress that I wear to what I'm saying about my body. So can you think of any helpful steps? And I know you've brought up a couple just with children in general, but in our own homes to really end that negative self-talk. Absolutely. So what I, what I do is I never, ever, as far as I can, as far as I know, uh, talk about my body other than maybe something about being strong um, or, you know, um, let's go for a bike ride and can you feel your muscles in your legs or, or something like that. I'm very conscious of not saying anything to do with images on the TV or people out on the street I hope this is not giving away too much, but, um, you know, fa- uh, fa- my family members who don't have my training and that lens yet, you know, they, they as everyone else in society will say, my goodness, you know, that, that person there doesn't look so healthy. And it's like zip it, zip it. Um, that is, that's in, in, inappropriate. Um, you can't be saying those things because our kids will pick up on it and they will develop their own weight biases. So um, being very conscious of what you say, and also your own, for example, mirror checking. And for women, for mums, not saying things like, I hate my body and I wish I looked like this and I wish I didn't have these wrinkles and I wish this, because you're teaching a kid to, to hate their body. Or at least in the future, if their body looks yours, which if they're biologically your, your child, they, they probably will look somewhat, somewhat like you, then they're learning that that's a bad thing. Um, and so that messaging becomes internalized and ingrained. So it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. Well, it's a message every single day too. Every single yeah. day you have that choice to turn it around. Um, just a funny story. We went for Lucy's four-year-old checkup and she put the blood pressure cuff on. This was just a couple of weeks ago. And she kept on saying, oh, are you measuring my muscles? Are you, are you seeing how strong I am? <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> that. Because those, those are the types of conversations that I have in front of my daughter. I just need to make sure I'm saying them to myself all the time as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But having kids for many women... Um, And I know there's a lot of women out there who choose not to have kids and such. Um, But for those who do, it can be a really, really powerful leverage for us to get the help that we need or really these pieces because we so desire to not create an intergenerational um, concern, you know, pass on this stuff to our kids. And I think that's really to be admired. That's exactly what I was going to have you expand on because when oh, Abby, yeah. Abby says that, I'm like, the thing is when I'm hearing you speak, a lot of it goes back to like, we have to work through our own things um, to be that really positive example that we're all striving to be um, rather than looking at it as like, I can say something to my kids, but do do whatever I want over here. Um, so yeah. I think that's an important point. But moving on to another part of the conversation that I'm excited to get into is that so many women track their food. They count their calories or their macros, and they're pretty strict with what they'll eat. I think one really hard thing about this topic is that we're being fed so many different viewpoints. I'll see one person that says, just look at your weight and look at your tracking as data and cut the emotional ties with it. And then another person just a little bit further down my feed says that tracking is typically going to lead to an obsessive relationship with food and that we shouldn't be weighing ourselves frequently. So I can understand like it is confusing to be a consumer at a time when there's so much, I would say almost over information around this topic. So I was wondering, where do we draw the line and how do we know if we have an issue with food versus just being healthy? Absolutely. That's a great question because it is so confusing. You know, many of our clients are, are basically orthorexic, which means that they're obsessed about eating in the most healthful way possible to the point that it's detrimental to their health and they end up with malnutrition, which is crazy when you think of it when we live in the United States of America that there are 
enormous numbers of people walking around with malnutrition that is, I'll say, self-induced in the sense of in inverted commas because their their motivation is to truly be the, the most healthiest version, the healthiest version of themselves. And I applaud that. I really applaud that desire and that uh, motivation. Um, but because of um, either a lack of true understanding around nutrition or probably I would say because of what we see on social media, which, um, you know, unfortunately the latest statistic I saw was 80 to 90% of what is on social media is either out of context or just sheer misinformation or this worked for me so it's going to work for you and it's just not, it's not true, it's not accurate, it's pseudoscience at best. And that's, that's, what, that's what we listen to, you know, we're, we're more we're more uh, likely to listen to our friend and neighbour who did this keto diet and it worked for them than we are to maybe go and see a nutritionist who said, you know, that's not such a great idea. Um, (laughs) You know, our friends hold so much influence, which is why social media is so powerful. But alas, I digress. Um, So um, to go go back to it, um, I think that a key factor is am I healthy or is, do I have a problem? A key question to ask yourself is how much of your day are you spending thinking about calories and what you're going to eat later and that I did eat that but I actually meant to eat that but then I kind of splurged there so now I need to compensate later and what's the scale going to say and how do my clothes fit? How much of your day are you thinking about weight and calories? Let's start there. The average person who gets up and says, I'm hungry and has breakfast and then is like, okay, I'm done. And then they get hungry later and go, okay, what's for lunch? I eat, I'm done. Uh, Which, by the way, is probably a male, (laughs) if you feel that way about food. You know, the average person spends about 15% of their day thinking about food and not calories, actually. For those of those of us who who develop an obsession around this stuff, or how could you not in this society, especially for women to be so thin, unrealistically thin, then you're probably seeing you're spending at least fifty percent of your day thinking about this stuff. Full blown eating disorder for bulimia and binge eating disorder, it's about eighty percent of your day. For anorexia, it's over a hundred percent. And you can ask the question: Well, there's only twenty four hours in the day. How can you be thinking about food? more than 100% because our anorexic clients will dream about food. But the point of this is that there's a big gap between 15% and 50% and that's where the obsession is. And so I ask people the question, aren't there a million other things that you'd rather be thinking about and putting your energy into rather than worrying about this stuff? Um, And we're told we're supposed to be worrying about it, but to what measure? Because, the, the, you know, most of us, if we allow our body to be at its natural weight before dieting interfered, of course, um, that's, that's the weight that's the best for our body to work optimally. But if it doesn't fit the thin ideal, we feel we, we need to control it and push, it, push that weight to a lower weight. And that's where the calorie counting and the measuring comes in. So I'm, I'm a very big proponent of going back to your internal regulatory system, which is, you know, hunger, fullness, satiety, and listening and queuing into that and not counting anything. You don't need to count calories. The body knows, like, you guys have got kids, I've got a child. A baby knows how many calories they need. It knows how much fuel it needs. It doesn't have a little measure on its wrist that says, okay, you've had your four cups today, you're done. Um, It's because of this very sophisticated internal regulatory system. Well, and, yeah, yeah. When, I was right. going to say when my toddlers, um, even if they'll have a piece of birthday cake, if they're full, they won't finish it. And it kind of blows my mind. I'm like, I'm going to finish that cake every single time. Right. Um, but they right. really won't. And it's kind of surprising, but I'm like, they're, they're regulated by they're regulated. their own internal, like I'm full. That's it. And we mess it up. We, as a society, are are trained to mess it up through diets because diets, when you think about the very essence, is even if you're hungry, if it's not time and if it's not your allocated, you can't eat. And even if you're still hungry, 
if you've had your allocated amount, you can't have more. And it messes up that internal regulatory system. So what it does is it teaches us to not trust our hunger and not trust our fullness. So then we feel that if we don't watch and count, it's going to all get out of control. And our worst fear is we're going to gain weight, but there's even a deeper fear. And if we gain weight and therefore in our eyes we're ugly, then that is equated with we are unlovable. And so it goes back to the deepest essence of wanting to be loved and be accepted, which is pretty profound. So this stuff is really really powerful. Um, So I I hope I I kind of answered that question. I know that was a long answer around, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And I have one more thought on that. So first of all, Melanie, I'm learning so much from you right now in these 45 minutes. And as a person who just found out what the term orthorexia means, so you mentioned orthorexia, and I think this might be a newer term for some people. I now understand that I fell into that category in high school. And I definitely think that more women need to know more about this because that line between I'm being so healthy and being congratulated for it in high school as I lost weight and ate healthier. I was also getting faster as a runner. I was getting better as a gymnast. So it was difficult because I was being praised and I was seeing the results get better because of having that eating disorder. So can you go into some more details on people who might be thinking they might be on that line of orthorexia, pushing more towards the eating disorder side than just being healthy? What are some first steps they can do to really start managing that? Absolutely. The first step is to, to kind of take a check and, um, and really just very gently ask yourself, um, is, this, is this taking up a lot of my day? Like if I can't, in other words, here's an example. If friends call you up spontaneously and clearly maybe not here in New York, but maybe in Wisconsin right now and say, hey, let's go out, to, let's go out for dinner, let's go out. Great, great. But in your mind, you're thinking if it's not sushi, if it's not Japanese, I can't go because anything other than that would be unhealthy and I'm not going to eat unhealthy food. So that would be that would be a clue. Do I miss social occasions because I don't have flexibility with my food? If I eat pasta, I think that it's almost a moral failing. So um, and if you start to have a list, like how long is your list of allowable foods and not allowable foods? That's always a great indicator of where you might be here with labeling foods. And I know society has trained us to do this, but believe it or not, you know, all foods fit. We, we ideally we're talking about food neutrality, meaning that all foods fit and then eating from a place of, 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 of health and balance and not cutting out your macros. Like cutting out your macros is never, ever a good idea. It's going to set you up for um, obsessing about food even more. So, so orthorexia is about how much of this, um, how inflexible am I around this? If I digress from eating this way, do I really beat myself up or feel really bad about myself? These are some of the key screening questions um, that I'm going through here. And the other thing is, do you ever binge on those foods that are on the not so healthy list? Do you ever overeat on them and then feel really bad and promise yourself you won't do that again? Those are all indications that this is not balanced, um, um, perhaps biologically, but also I would suggest emotionally it's not balanced. And it, it may actually be more in the line of getting obsessive and, and therefore in and of itself unhealthy. Um, but if you're cutting out certain macros, uh, macronutrients, meaning carbohydrates, or maybe super low on fat, you may actually be in a place of malnutrition and not even realise it. Um, so, so taking a look at what you're doing is the first step. And then maybe being brave enough to, to, to really kind of ask some hard questions of yourself and then also ask the next hard question, which is why am I really eating this way? Is it about optimal health? And am I really that healthy eating this way? Does this stress me out? Because that's not healthy as well. Um, and maybe then, you know, talking to uh, uh, a nutritionist who has an eating disorder specialty, not because you have an eating disorder necessarily, but they have the lens of disordered eating that a regular nutritionist won't have. So that can be really helpful. And I think the last thing is just knowing that you're so not alone because all of us out there are trying to be the healthiest, you know, want to be the healthiest versions of ourselves. And so the motivation comes from a good place. So 
reduce the shame can be helpful in them reaching out and getting some more support. I loved that answer. <laughs> I think it's it's so helpful to use the lens of like how much of your time are you spending um, like really thinking about your food intake. But I could talk to you all day, so I hope that we could <laughs> do this again because I think Absolutely. that this is going to be such a valuable episode for our listeners. So to finish up, I was wondering if there is one message that you want every woman listening to know. Gosh, the one message I'd love people to know is you don't have to diet, you don't have to count your calories, and believe it or not, you don't have to weigh yourself. I, I, I truly believe that, uh, you know, having at least at the very least weight neutrality where we're just neutral about weight. We don't have to be positive about our bodies to stretch, but just to be appreciative and grateful for the body that we have instead of judging it so harshly, it will free up so much of our energy, so much of our thoughts we can dedicate to other things. If we're in a conversation, we can be truly immersed in the conversation rather than thinking about, you know, this waistband on my jeans is digging into me because I ate too much last night. You know, imagine what that would feel like. I, I would love that for all women. I would love that for all women too. Can you let people know where they can find more of you and your resources? Absolutely. So our website is the best place to go and that's balanced with a D TX.com balanced tx.com and actually um your listeners if they're curious to know about a friend a family member or maybe even themselves we have a free 20 minute uh, discovery call with one of our our trained um, staff members who could just answer some of your questions and certainly also provide more resources we also have a free downloadable redefining wellness anti-diet book uh, it's a compilation of over 150 um, clinicians and, and people who work in our field around how to be more body neutral or body positive and some of these messages from today. From today. So that's a free downloadable book that you can also obtain. I think I'm going to join that discovery call. <laughs> I think it'd be so helpful for me right now, um, knowing that I have made huge, huge steps. I know so many women who we've talked to have made huge steps, but that full recovery that you talked about, I'm not completely there. So thank you for sharing those resources. And also so much for sharing your own story and your expertise and a topic that's really hitting home for many women. Ever since we had the body image podcast, which was our second podcast episode ever, we kept on having people say, we want more of this. We want more. Yeah. And Amy and I both knew that having an expert on was definitely the next step. And this can be a struggle for many people. So we definitely encourage you to seek help if any of the conversations we had today resonated with you, or if there's someone you know who has brought up these conversations, maybe they're declining the burger and fries night. Maybe they're saying no to some of these social interactions because of their weight and just the complex nature around thinking about their own weight. So please, please send this episode to them or even just highlight Melanie's resources that she brought up today. 